Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rattling, talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. Hi, everyone. Welcome to an exciting episode where we are uncovering secrets to a symptom-free menopause. And our expert today is Dr. Zach Bush. He is the one of the very few triple board certified physicians in the country with expertise in internal medicine, endocrinology, metabolism, hospice, and palliative care. His breakthrough science that Dr. Zach and his colleagues have delivered offers profound new insights into human health and longevity. In fact, back in 2012, he discovered a family of carbon-based redox molecules made by bacteria, which as it turns out, serves as an antidote to glyphosate and many other toxins that are disrupting our body's natural defense systems. Um, Dr. Zach points to his kids as the driving force behind his passion and um, is really focused on bringing radical change in the mega industries of big farming, big pharma, and Western medicine at large. And today... He's going to share his deep insights into how to have a symptom-free menopause. Dr. Zach Bush, welcome. Thank you so much, Rena, for having me back. So let's start with what the heck is going on with the female body during menopause? Great. My background in endocrinology was really focused on a lot of the uh, common you know, dialogue that happens around menopause, and that is often coming down to two hormones, which are estrogen and progesterone. But before I go into the, a little bit of description on those two hormones and what they're doing and how they play an important balancing act in your life, I want to point out that estrogen and progesterone are only two of over 2,000 hormones that we know of that are affecting your day-to-day life before, during, and after menopause. And so it's very important to realize that if you're having symptoms that are untoward, if you're having sleep problems, hot flashes, decreased sexual function, decreased muscle mass, all these myriad of of symptoms that get attributed to estrogen progesterone shift, I want you to realize that there are a vast number of hormones involved in that huge symptomatology. I also want to reflect on later, we can go into greater detail on this, that it's not necessary to have symptoms of menopause. In fact, many nations around the world, in the developing world particularly, haven't experienced the hot flashes and all of the very typical symptoms that we see in the American menopause syndrome. And that is largely because the environment that we're surrounded by is very full of chemicals and toxins that are making us prone to a very intense inflammatory baseline. And so if you go into menopause in an inflamed state, you're going to have symptoms as estrogen and progesterone and your other hormones shift. If you're not inflamed and you have a very low level of inflammation in the body and you go into a shift in your estrogen and progesterone, you're far less likely to have any symptoms uh, through that transition. And certainly we've seen many, many women come into our clinics with a vast array of these symptoms and then make some radical lifestyle changes change the chemical content in their food uh, that they're consuming and everything else and see dramatic improvement without adding any bioidentical hormones or anything else that would typically be recommended by your allopathic doctor. And what's causing this inflammation, this rampage uh, inflammation that's forcing us into these symptoms? 
the, the, there's a number of different factors here, and uh, they all come down to what you do in your day. Number one thing that's really changed over the last 30 to 50 years in the United States is it's very unlikely that you're growing any of your own food. 30 to 50 years ago, the vast majority of homes in America had at least some small garden were growing a percentage of their food uh, in their gardens. We have broadly and, and deeply outsourced that food production to large farming industry, which is a chemical farming uh, technique. That means that you now have chemicals that have been integrated into your food chain. And mentioned in the introduction there was glyphosate, which is really the primary chemical that we have worldwide. We're currently putting about 4.5 billion pounds of that chemical into our environment. And that is a water-soluble toxin. And unfortunately, in the late 1990s, we engineered our food to be able to handle that chemical in Roundup-ready crops. Glyphosate is the active ingredient in the Roundup weed killer. And so now we have you know, 95% of the soybeans grown in the United States, 85% of the wheat, uh, corn grown here, and a, and a very large percentage of our wheat crops being sprayed directly with glyphosate, Roundup. That means that the food that you're consuming has now got this toxin in there. And uh, recent studies, uh, actually just this week, published in the, the Journal of American Medicine, uh, which is JAMA, the, one of our most respected peer-reviewed journals, uh, demonstrated urine concentrations of this Roundup chemical mm -hmm. in American consumers between 1990 and today. And what we see is this six-fold, four-fold increase, depending on which area of the country, of just uh, that single chemical over just the last six years, let alone the last 20. So you see this huge accumulation of this chemical in our food, which is then ending up in our bloodstream from our gut and then ultimately in our urine as we try to clear that toxin out of our body. And so that single toxin has really set us up for a cascade of inflammation, as you had asked. Mm -hmm. The inflammation that we're referring to here is specific to chronic inflammation, not just acute inflammation, which is you responding to an injury and getting better right. and actually getting up stronger, not weaker. In the case of a chronic inflammatory injury, like we have with these chemicals that are damaging our gut lining, we are exposing the immune system every day to an overwhelming amount of the outside world. The immune system is very much designed to keep you separated from the outside world. This is my space, Zach. This is the outside world. My immune system is programmed to know what Zach looks like. If it sees anything other than Zach, it attacks. Mm -hmm. That uh, barrier system that keeps Zach differentiated from the world is primarily my gut lining, starting at my nasal sinuses where I breathe every breath. I breathe in chemicals, pollution, mm -hmm. car exhaust in front of me, pollen, uh, mold spores. I'm breathing in all kinds of stuff all the time. If that barrier system is intact, my immune system never has to react. But if I start to leak by breathing and drinking and eating chemicals like glyphosate, I start to leak across all those membranes. And suddenly mm -hmm. I'm overwhelming my immune system with the outside world and I'm reacting to everything in my environment. And that does cause inflammation. And that's what leads to that shift from, oh boy, I just got an injury and I'm responding to, there is so much constant injury, constant attack going on that the immune system starts to run out of its coping mechanisms, antioxidants, enzyme reserves, all kinds of things start to get depleted. And so every injury is now fueling this inflammatory cascade or snowball that gets out of control. And it's really the underpinnings of all of the chronic conditions that we see in the United States now. 
And is that also why we're starting to see something called perimenopause? Because you, as you mentioned, there's countries out there that don't even have menopause symptoms. And now we've got perimenopause and the numbers are, it can start as early as 35. Yes. And so here we are 17 years ahead of schedule starting to see women uh, developing these symptoms of menopause, which are the hot flashes, Mm -hmm. poor sleep quality, fractured sleep, uh, anxiety, major depressive episodes, certainly loss of muscle mass, difficult time losing weight. Uh, brain fog, all of these things are, are symptomatic of this hormonal shift in, this, in the setting of inflammation. And so you're exactly right. This, this widespread damage to our immune system from our food environment is now leading to this propensity to develop early signs of those hormonal shifts that should have been completely tolerated and have been through all human history. But now we have such a massive burden of inflammation that even the subtle changes in progesterone that you would see in your 30s are starting to unmask this uh, inflammatory state and lead to those symptoms of perimenopause. So the question is, as someone listening to this podcast going, yep, I've got these symptoms. And you know, a lot of women have differing symptoms and not every woman goes through the exact same experience. Uh, but it looks like hot flashes is the number one. So we can start there. 70, over 70% of women in menopause will experience or perimenopause will experience hot flashes. So let's start there. Very good. First, first question, do you believe that we should address symptom by symptom? So let's do hot flashes, or do you believe that really it's all about getting the body back into balance and then suddenly all the symptoms will disappear? I believe that the latter is true, but the, the hot flash is a classic symptom to describe the entire syndrome. So okay, great. That, that's a great place to start. Um, First, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of an overview of the two dominant hormones that we always talk about, which is estrogen and progesterone, and they tie into this hot flash phenomenon. And so estrogen is a pro-inflammatory, pro-growth, pro-anabolic uh, kind of compound. It will build muscle, it will do lots of things that are sound beneficial, but it really is a foot on the accelerator of immune reactivity. Progesterone is the opposite. Progesterone is actually an immunosuppressant. It modulates the immune system so that you don't get an out-of-control inflammatory reaction. Every time estrogen goes up to high levels in the body, we should see a match of progesterone within days or weeks of that increasing to help modulate the downstream effects of that inflammatory estrogen stimulus. The perimenopause, which as you mentioned can start as early as the 30s now, And frankly, we see even women in their teens and 20s already showing up with progesterone deficiency. This is one of the leading causes of infertility already in our 20s is uh, progesterone deficiency. Progesterone, Mm -hmm. as an immunomodulator, when it starts to be uh, deficient, we start to get too much of the estrogen signal. And so with that overwhelming unopposed estrogen, you start to get the hot flash and all of the rest of the symptoms, brain fog, loss of muscle, Um, you know, poor functioning sleep and the rest. What's happening there is you've got a pro-growth, pro-inflammatory hormone starting to put pressure on an already inflamed system. The last thing that you want on a damaged or inflamed cell is a growth factor. A growth factor is pushing down the accelerator pedal of demand on the body. This is very much what I think is happening to women in this country on the macro level. Here we have all these women that are now supposed to be competing in a workplace for these very competitive 
you know, upper echelon jobs where it's no longer, you know, a nine to five, we see women now competing very successfully in kind of the C-suite type jobs where they're not only checking email 24 hours a day, they're taking phone calls from a global marketing place, they're traveling extensively, they are just under the gun with just demand, and they're kind of matching their male counterparts in that overextension. But then they further extend themselves with all of the maternal natural state, which is childbearing, uh, you know, everything down to breastfeeding, you know, taking care of the details at the school and the PTA and all of the typical nurturing kind of uh, roles that the woman has played in cultures uh, back in time, they are still playing out. And so we see this double demand on women. And so I really see the hormonal situation kind of mimicking this macro system of burnout. Mm. Now a woman who's pedal to the metal, starting to get damage in her lifestyle from her lifestyle of overwork, and then she has kids. And now she now you're just throwing another growth factor, if you will, onto a very busy lifestyle. And it can be the breaking point. And she has now as postpartum depression or other states of total overwhelm starts to develop anxiety attacks, panic disorder. I have many women in my clinic who have had to drop out of the workforce because their anxiety attacks got so severe. And then they had metabolic collapse and they started gaining weight and developed prediabetes and just went down this whole negative pathway of cascade because they overdid it. Well, that same thing is happening down at the microscopic level when you have unopposed estrogen on top of inflammation. So imagine your day-to-day life before you have any imbalance in estrogen and progesterone. You're eating an American diet and that might be a really healthy American diet, i.e. going to the juice shop, you know, trying to eat at your kind of healthier, higher-end restaurants instead of fast food, and Mm -hmm. you're trying to make a lot of smart decisions, and yet you're consuming an enormous amount of Roundup indirectly through your food chain. You're also seeing a lot of antibiotic exposure from your doctors, and each time you get exposed to Roundup, which actually functions as an antibiotic to kill a lot of the helpful bacteria, um, your immune system weakens, and then you get an antibiotic from your doctor, and it fuels that fire. So you're being hit from all angles with this antibiotic kind of environment, you're losing the microbiome that would help support the human life. While thinking you're actually eating so healthy because you're, While thinking as you you're, mentioned, you're having juices, yeah, and salads. Right. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind, a juice is something interesting. Like if you could do a kale juice or a green juice or a spinach juice, it can take as much as like four pounds of greens to create, you know, four to eight ounces of juice. So if you're doing some big juice a day, you might be getting an enormous amount of toxin load in there because they didn't just put in one head of lettuce. They put in four pounds of That's right. kale into that one little juice shot. And not only did you get all the super nutrients in there, you also got a bunch of chemical residues from four pounds of produce that were grown. So certainly if you're going to be juicing, you absolutely want to do organic. But unfortunately, of course, we're now in an environment where 75% of the rainfall, 75% of the air that we breathe mm-hmm. is contaminated with Roundup. And so even your organic crops are going to have residues of these things. So juicing, when overdone, can actually be a vulnerable point. It doesn't mean you necessarily need to stop juicing. You just need to be aware, wow, I, I could be getting a lot of chemical into my diet through these different avenues. Or at a minimum, maybe juice only those vegetables and fruits that are not on the dirty dozen list. So That's correct. even if you are juicing something, maybe you're, getting, you're going to get a lot less of the toxicity That's right. in you. Okay. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. And so kale happens to be, depending on the season, especially often shows up on that dirty dozen list. And so, um, whereas, you know, some of your other ones like arugula is not in there. So if you needed to throw in a grain, you could find something on the clean 15 to get in there. 
And so, yeah, absolutely. So, you, you know, we're kind of always getting inundated. So now you're living this healthy lifestyle. You're spending a lot of money and time trying to eat healthy, but you've got this low-grade chronic inflammation. And inflammation in and of itself suppresses progesterone, which is interesting. It's got this interplay. Like once you start to get a little out of control with inflammation, progesterone goes down and estrogen will also go down, but not as severely as progesterone. And so that's ironic because that means that once you tip into chronic inflammation, then estrogen becomes part of the problem. The lack of progesterone becomes a bigger issue. And so this is, you know, the functional medicine doctors are trying to work this out by just throwing progesterone on right. by 35, 40, long before menopause, you're getting progesterone uh, added in because you are progesterone deficient because you've got chronic inflammation. Well, the only reason you're really needing the progesterone in the first place is because you have the chronic inflammation. And so I think in general, as functional medicine doctors, we're doing a disservice if we just say, oh, you're just progesterone deficient, here's your progesterone. We need to see that as a major red flag and say, whoa, we, we should not be having to add progesterone to a 35 or 40 or 45-year-old woman. Exactly. We should actually be looking at really widespread lifestyle intervention to reduce that chronic inflammatory state. If we ignore that symptom... And we just cover it up with the Band-Aid and say, well, now you've got progesterone. I just put it in a cream or a tablet and you're good to go. Well, we just put it through a Band-Aid on, a, on a, an underlying mm -hmm. problem that will lead to breast cancer, cardiovascular disease, major depression, all of the typical patterns of chronic inflammation if we don't address that underlying cause. That is just such great insight to share that we shouldn't just be applying creams and potions and lotions because they are helping us very briefly with our symptoms, but really we have to get back down to the, to the core cause, in which case in, you're mentioning is inflammation. Before we dive into, so what are your top recommendations for managing inflammation? I'd love to know, so what exactly is a hot flash physiologically? Great. So a hot flash is an imbalance in the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is your subconscious nervous system. You're, you have a, an, a, a nervous system that you're volitionally doing something, if you reach for a glass of water, that's your active nervous system intentionally reaching for that. So it's your brain triggering. I'm thirsty. I could treat that with water. There's a glass over there. I'm going to move my hand from here towards that glass and move it. To, there's a whole bunch of information and decision-making being made by the brain to make that simple process of taking a drink of water happen. The, the, reverse of that or the vaccines of that is the autonomic nervous system. Every day you breathe some eight to 20 times a minute. Your heart beats at anywhere from 70 to 120 times a minute. All of this massive energy output that's very regulated and very uh, carefully measured out is being done obviously without you thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So that's being done by your autonomic nervous system. And one of the big pieces that that nervous system controls is your gut. Your gut is innervated by really a single nerve called the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve run, innervates or puts nervous function, nervous system function into the back of your throat, all the way down the esophagus, the entire stomach, all the way down into the small intestines in their entirety, through to the cecum or the first part of the large intestine, up the, up the ascending colon across the transverse colon. And so that huge amount of gut space covers way more than two tennis courts in service area is all innervated by a single nerve. And that nerve is part of the autonomic nervous system. And so you never have to think, oh, I need to move my, my food from this part of my small intestine over to my colon. 
Right. You never have to think about that. It's happening behind the scenes. You have a computer running in your brain that's managing all of that. That's the autonomic nervous system. The second big piece of the autonomic nervous system after the gut are your blood vessels. And interesting, that starts with your heart, with the heart rate and how often that's beating per minute, but also the tone of the blood vessels. Are they dilated or are they constricted? And that regulates, obviously, your blood pressure. And so your autonomic nervous system is presetting how much pressure is going to be in a single blood vessel at any given moment. Your autonomic nervous system has to work extremely fast, like nearly light speed rates, to get you up out of bed without passing out. Because when you're laying flat, your blood the blood pressure going to your brain is totally passive. You don't need to maintain anything because gravity is pulling blood from the heart right up to the brain. In contrast, as soon as you sit up on a pillow or sit upright or stand up, you have to immediately develop a very uh, quick response in the blood vessels where they clamp down in your feet and legs and your inner abdomen so that your brain doesn't lose blood pressure and you suddenly pass out. So if you're able to stand up without passing out, your autonomic nervous system is working very well. A hot flash is simply dysregulation of that, that autonomic nervous system where you get an inappropriate dilation of all of the blood vessels in your skin. And so suddenly, instead of constricted and sending uh, blood to your heart and gut and brain, suddenly you dilate everything and blood is being shunted to the skin. This leads to sudden warmth and sweating and everything else because there's all this hot temperature suddenly distributed to the skin that should not have been there minutes before. That's a huge red flag that the autonomic nervous system is off. Mm -hmm. And the biggest nerve in that autonomic nervous system is the vagus nerve innervating your gut. So we talked earlier about glyphosate or Roundup being this huge chemical in our food chain. And have you now taken into consideration that all of our American consumers have this low-grade gut inflammation going on the one nerve that is most affected is the vagus nerve. Oh, wow. Whereas the Interesting. vagus nerve gets in, involved in this chronic inflammatory state of our diet, we're very prone to these autonomic nervous system dysfunctions of brain fog, short-term memory loss, poor sleep quality, poor gut function, irritable bowel, chronic constipation, chronic diarrhea, fluctuating between diarrhea and constipation, and then, of course, the hot flash. Every one of those symptoms is all autonomic nervous system, and it's all tying back into this chronic stress state of the vagus nerve, which is the big granddaddy of all that autonomic nervous system. How do we calm down the vagus nerve? So many methods to that, which is the good news, right? So since it hits our lungs, it hits our blood vessels, it innervates the heart rate, it innervates the whole gut, there's many ways to, to help support that nervous system. And so almost everything that you've ever heard of is good from you. Everything from yoga to, you know, a healthy organic plant-based diet to, you know, whatever it is to meditation, for example. Meditation is a powerful tool to settle down that vagus nerve, lowers heart rate, lowers uh, blood, blood pressure, helps bring into a, a relaxed state that whole autonomic nervous system. So prayer, spiritual song, meditation, all those work, qigong, tai chi, yoga, all work. And then, of course, changing the diet. Get the chemicals out of your diet, and you can shift that dramatically. And that almost sounds similar to what you'd probably recommend for inflammation management, right? Or are there other things you would add for inflammation management? Really the same thing. And, you know, there's so many things out there. The, and when you start to think about chronic inflammation, from a diet standpoint, the herbs are amazing. I don't think any people group on the planet has done as good of a job as the Indian people. 
the Indian food that we see in modern day is just an echo of thousands and thousands of years of food traditions around modulating inflammation. And so everything from the highly fermented uh, dairy products down to the herbs like the turmeric, curcumin, uh, curcumin, and all these, these are all herbs that balance that inflammatory state, that have a progesterone effect. They kind of reduce that inflammatory proestrogen effect. And so that's, you know, that's an interesting thing that our food not only can be a source of our toxins, it's also for thousands of years been our source of medicine. And so I think returning to these traditional foods uh, will be a huge secret to success for our American population that if we can, can extract ourselves from this Western medicine chemical factory farming back to a traditional food production and food preparation where we're actually slow cooking our food for you know, 24 hours off and overnight in these slow cookers, they're mm-hmm. cooking the lentils and the chickpeas and everything else. And they're cooking that in turmeric and coconut oil and all these incredible anti-inflammatory uh, oils and herbs. All of that, I think if we reintegrated that into the daily diet in a more aggressive fashion, we would see benefit. You mentioned herbs. So I have to ask for some of the women that are listening going, that all sounds wonderful, Dr. Zach, but I don't have the time to get into this mode of sort of going to the farmer's market and cooking and I'm, please give me some shortcuts. So let's talk, are there any shortcuts? For example, herbs. Um, I personally have used something from Banyan Botanicals that honestly kept me sane. That's called Women's Natural Transitions. And no, I, we, we don't get anything back from them for mentioning, but that was the one herb that worked for me. Have you noticed in your practice, are there herbs that can help a woman deal with some of these symptoms, specifically hot flashes, mood swings, insomnia? Absolutely. I think there's many dietary supplements on the market that have an impact on the inflammatory cascade. Um, Some of the big ones that we use are the oils. So I'm a big fan of uh, emu oil, for example, from the emu bird. That's Mm. pretty hard to get in the United States and especially good quality stuff is really almost untouchable right now. I think that's going to change in the next few years. I think we're going to have better and better products on the market. Um, one brand that's currently available that has some reputable uh, quality to it is uh, is called Walkabout. I think their website is um, walkabouthealthproducts.com. It's a long URL there, but walkabout, W-A-L-K-A-B-O-U-T, walkabouthealthproducts.com. That's, that oil can be really nice stabilizer for vascular inflammation, for example. And how would you take the oil? You can t- either t- most of it comes in capsules, but they also have okay. a liquid form that you can take by the teaspoon or tablespoon. Okay, got it. Empty stomach with food? Any preference? doesn't matter. Okay. Yeah, you can take that with food. It's not, it's not a picky one. Um, so an oil like that uh, can be a nice uh, soothing content. But you know, you know, the disclaimer here is now I'm going to talk about my company and our laboratories and what we've been working on in the last five years because I think it's pertinent to the story. But take the disclaimer that I now have a conflict of interest in telling you this. Uh, <laughs> Thank but, you. But my, my company has been working on this very specific issue of the Roundup and the glyphosate and its impact on the immune system for the last five years. And what we uh, developed over this time was a product that is from bacteria and fungi. It turns out that it, you really can't pick up an article from any journal anymore without some mention of the microbiome or mm-hmm. the microbial life around us, which are the bacteria and the fungi and all these incredible invisible microscopic life that populate the environment around us as well as our own bodies. And certainly the probiotic industry has done a good job of convincing us that maybe there's such a good thing as good bacteria. 
Well, we've moved past that to realize that there's no such thing as a bad bacteria or fungi. They all play a critical role in the ecosystem around us. Some of the things that we think of as being kind of really toxic bacteria or that are very pathogenic or disease-causing are pseudomonas, for example. Pseudomonas is ter a terrifying infection that you can get in a hospital. Well, it turns out that pseudomonas in the environment is one of the most potent uh, bacterial detoxifiers when it comes to radioactive material. So the most mm. feared toxin on the planet is radioactive material from our nuclear plants. Fukushima, for example, right now is dumping still to this day, and you don't hear about this in the news anymore, but it's still over a million gallons of water contaminated with radioactive material a day are being pumped back into the oceans out of Fukushima. Is that right? As they're trying to, yep. And just, oh there's actually God. a sticker online. If you go to Fukushima uh, water contamination uh, via Google there, you can actually see the ticker running. Um, and they're still pumping Jeez. a million gallons of ocean water through that plant every day to try to keep that nuclear core from melting down further. And all that radioactive material is getting pumped back into our oceans to contaminate our fish and beyond. Well, it turns out that Pseudomonas is a really potent digester of uranium compounds like the radioactive material from Fukushima or Chernobyl or the like. And so we're going to find out, I think, over the next 20, 30 years that absolutely every bacteria and fungi have a really important role to play in the larger ecosystem. Mm -hmm. It's just that if they get uh, out overgrown or out of balance with the rest of the ecosystem, they become a problem for human health. And so in that context, we uh, uncovered in the soils, uh, in the soil science in 2012, we found a whole family of these carbon snowflakes, each species of bacteria and fungi making a different uh, subset of these snowflakes, each one looking a little different than the rest. In this perfect snowstorm of information, these carbon molecules coming out of the microbiome, we get an incredible biologic effect on the human immune system and importantly, the DNA. And so what we've been showing is that this supplement that we now use, which is called Restore, this dietary supplement has a profound effect on increasing your DNA's production of some of the critical proteins that make up the barrier system between you and that outside world. Yeah. Barrier system is called tight junctions. It's like the Velcro between your cells. And your gut, which, as mentioned, covers two tennis courts and surface area, is a tiny membrane in regard to its depth. It's half the thickness of a human hair. So pluck one of your hairs, cut that in half width-wise, and that almost invisible width is what separates you from the outside world. To create a membrane that covers two tennis courts, it takes billions and billions of cells. Mm -hmm. And those billions of cells have to be tied together by the Velcro to create one coherent barrier system. What we've demonstrated is that the Roundup that we're eating and drinking and breathing is actually a direct toxin to these Velcro proteins and the whole thing falls apart. And so the major reason that we're seeing this epidemic of inflammation and chronic inflammation in the setting of our diet is because the chemicals in our food, water, et cetera, is actually breaking down this frontline barrier system and our immune system is now being overwhelmed by every bite of food, every breath we take, et cetera. And so this uh, family of carbon molecules, we found that if we put this into play alongside Roundup, we have an antidote effect where we're no longer seeing that damaging drop in the protective quality of that gut barrier. And so it's a really exciting thing to see that Mother Nature has a solution to even our most idiotic mistakes that we would make. Mother Nature has buried this secret in her soil some 50 million years ago. And that's what we're pulling out of these fossil soil level layers. We're pulling out these 
ancient databases of information from the bacteria and fungi that thrived on the planet long before the humans showed up. When we put that into play into the gut, we have a really profound effect on the DNA in the human cells producing the proteins that will become those tight junctions. And suddenly we're able to expose that same gut lining to up to 20,000 times the amount that you would see in your diet and still do a fantastic protective effect uh, at the tight junction. So the bacteria really do seem to have the big secret to the human health. So we use that supplement pretty aggressively in our clinic for uh, kind of a front line of just supporting the healthy immune system of of the body. And how how should you take that? How should someone take Restore? There's How many no, times a day with food, without food? Sure. number of ways that it can be applied. Uh, there's a nasal sinus preparation that we have, and that's just a spray that you take nasally anywhere from twice a day to every hour on the day. You can't overdose on this stuff. It's one of the safest compounds ever studied on the microscope. Um, and so you have no, no minimum dose, but you're really running it up um, over to kind of match your environment. So if you find yourself Uh, very frequently with that kind of that overwhelmed immune system at the nose and sinuses where you're always reacting to your outside world, you're always dripping, you're always, uh, that's the perfect support to your natural immune system to lavage that with this liquid that is going to be in that nasal spray. Mm -hmm. You can also be more aggressive in the nasal cavities by putting just a teaspoon of the liquid into a neti pot. And so the neti pot is an age old Mm-hmm. Uh, technology that I love to use in my clinic. And so that's usually somewhere around a cup of warm water with about a quarter to half a teaspoon of salt. And you mix that up and then you throw throw in your little teaspoon or tablespoon of Restore. And then you can t- do that normal uh, nasal sinus lavage with that uh, cup of warm water. So that's the nasal preparation options. The oral is, is really the mainstay. And the largest surface area in our body for our immune system stimulation is definitely the gut. And so we use this oral liquid as the delivery system for that. Uh, we recommend uh, three times a day, but you can certainly do it more often than that if you want more protection. Uh, but certainly going after uh, uh, three times will get, get you 95% of the way there. Uh, if you even got it once a day, you're getting some 60 to 80% of the benefit uh, that you would uh, see out of three times a day dosing. So you can get a, a bang for the buck out of once a day usage. We usually kind of do a tablespoon or so in the morning if you're going to do once a day. But what you'll notice is an improvement in a lot of those autonomic nervous system things within a couple hours of that, and then it starts to wane. So maybe six, mm. eight hours after you take it, you'll start to see those symptoms come back. And so the more frequent you take it, the more you'll support that minute-to-minute immune system function. Oh, interesting. And do you take it with food or it doesn't matter? It doesn't matter so much. From a functional standpoint, it works anytime. Uh, if you've taken it after food where you just ate a meal that had some glyphosate in it and, uh-huh. or you drank some water, then you're going to do some damage. The, the food is always going to do a little damage. Um, we've demonstrated that this bacterial communication network does support the recovery of that membrane, um, but from an energy standpoint, you're always, it's always cheaper to prevent the injury than treat. That's the right. And so we do like, you know, best case scenario, taking it with, or a few minutes before food is brilliant. Uh, but if you forget, it's certainly beneficial to take it as soon as you do remember, even if that's after the meal. That makes a lot of sense. Let's talk weight gain. The yeah. hot flashes is of course the one thing. And we, we chatted about that. The second thing that I hear over and over again is why am I putting on weight? I am eating less. I'm working out more. And yet my belly is doubling and my pants don't fit. 
where is the weight gain coming from during menopause and what are the remedies for it? This is a super interesting story that's continuing to unfold. But we are starting to find out that the changes hormonally that happen during peri and menopause, um, it, the estrogen progesterone shifts as well as a lot of the other kind of less talked about hormones, things like ghrelin, leptin, insulin, all these more minor hormones, as they start to shift in a chronic inflammatory state or your peri or menopausal states, they actually affect the bacterial populations in your gut. And so they, uh, as the hormonal environment changes, the gut changes to these firmicute bacteria uh, in your gut. And the firmicutes are the guys that tend to slow metabolism down, increase acidity and fermentation in the gut, and uh, lead to that metabolic collapse where you start to lose lean muscle, start to gain fat, weight, and have a very hard time no matter how much you diet or exercise to reverse that syndrome. An amazing study was done in 2014 to show that we could actually make mice start gaining weight just by taking the bacteria out of the gut of obese humans and put them into the mice, and suddenly those mice were getting obese within a month. No change in diet, no change in exercise. They would start gaining weight just because we changed their bacteria. Wow. We then did the other study, which was take gut flora from skinny people and put them in the, in the same mice. And what we found is no matter what we fed them or no matter how we restricted their diet, we couldn't get them to gain weight. They were always skinny. And so a profound demonstration, this was 2014, a couple of years ago already, and it's been repeated by a number of different labs around the world now to show that we have a huge reliance. Our metabolism is actually being programmed by that ecosystem in and around us rather than by perhaps what's directly on our plate. And so to get at this, you know, it becomes pretty complicated. And, and in some ways it's reassuring just because you're gaining weight it doesn't mean that your body's broken. doesn't mean that you can never lose weight again. doesn't mean that you're, you're, you're failing in the gym. So there's no character flaw here. It's your bacterial biome has shifted largely probably because of shift in your immune system, shift in that inflammatory state. So the good news is, is if instead of working on, your, on cutting calories and exercising more, if we instead get that coherent membrane of your gut put back together and shift the bacterial biome in your gut, we will expect to see that weight loss happen even if you don't restrict calories and exercise more. And so if we start to really refocus your lifestyle around a different environment, you'll get there. The two major pieces of this, I'm, of course, we could go on for hours and hours on mm -hmm. life, healthy lifestyle reform, but let me give you just two nuggets. Number one is your sleep. You've got to respect the day-night cycle if you want to lose weight. Mm. This seems to play again into the bacterial biome and its adjustments. But if you start to ignore the day-night cycle and you start staying up late and you're one of those people like many of us checking our email at midnight still or you know, tapping right. away on your laptop, in your lap, in bed until one o'clock in the morning. How'd you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so I'd say anybody kind of living that high-tech, high-lifestyle, the California dream is going to be prone to that that lifestyle. And what's happening is you're suppressing leptin, you're suppressing ghrelin, you're screwing up all this relationship between satiety and, um, and, and um, nutrient intake. And so you're screwing those up through that lifestyle. So number one, if you really feel like you're perimenopausal, menopausal, you're just at your wit's end with the hot flashes and the screwed up sleep, take a look at that moment. I think you're going to realize, oh my gosh, I am absolutely one of those people. And so the technique that you need to do is wake up early and do your work then and then get to bed early. 
And what time do you go to bed? Get get up early. I'm talking about getting up early. And if we look back in time before, not just before the internet, not just before television, but before the electric light, we get a very interesting Mm. piece of information. The average wake time in the late 1800s, around 1880, we developed a light bulb, Edison in 1886 was kind of when that went mainstream. Mm -hmm. So late, early 1880s, the average wake time was around 4.30 a.m. Oh, wow. and today in farmers, uh, you see that their average wake time is still around 4.30 a.m. So anybody who's living uh, in connection with the natural life cycles of nature are going to be up early, pre-dawn. Your body is activating. You have over 40 hormones that we know of. It's probably going to end up being a couple hundred hormones that are turning on around 4 a.m. in the morning to regulate everything from metabolism to your appetite for the day, to your immune system regulation, to the growth of muscle, all these things are being regulated at 4 a.m. and they're activating you, trying to get you up and out of bed. But if you didn't go to sleep until 1 a.m., then mm-hmm. you're just starting your second cycle of sleep when all those hormones turn on and you're going to have fractured sleep. And so you'll suddenly wake up and it'll be hard to get back to sleep because your mind is racing. And you're like, my God, it's 3.30 That's right. in the morning. Mm-hmm. Why can't I sleep? Well, you can't sleep because your body thinks it's time to get up. And it's very frustrated that you only got three hours of sleep but it's got 40 hormones that are telling you to wake up right now. And you're forcing yourself back to sleep for another couple of sleep cycles. And many people will, will find that, you know, if they are able to fall back asleep at five or 6 a.m., suddenly they get their best sleep six to 9 a.m. And then That's they're right. late and they're behind the eight ball and everything else. The reason you got better sleep from six to 9 a.m. instead of four to 6 a.m. is because your hormones at 4 a.m. were trying to get you up. By 6 a.m. they had given up and they <laughs> think that you are in some sort of famine war or pestilence going on and so it's shifted you into a fight or flight state where it's like okay we're going to get a little bit of this deep sleep so that we can get up and fight the war and as soon as you do wake up at 9 a.m you're in a fight or flight state no matter what you eat is going to be stored as fat in the liver and you're going to have a real struggle so get up early pre-dawn would be ideal but at least be getting up by 6 a.m 6 37 now you start pushing past 7 a.m you're now definitely tickling into those kind of fight or flight hours So you're trying to get up before 7 a.m. and you're trying to start to feed the system. And so again, in the 1880s, we would jump out of bed at 4.30 and we would grab a little bite to eat. We would suppress ghrelin, which is a potent appetite hormone, and then we would set out. And so once you've suppressed ghrelin, you can go and get your morning chores done on the farm and then you come back in and you have your big breakfast at 8. That would have been a typical pattern in the 1880s. And if we go back to that pattern where we get up early, suppress our appetite hormones with some food intake, go out, do some physical exercise, do our yoga classes, do our workouts, and then eat a larger food intake, now our body is programmed saying we woke up at the right time, we're taking in fuel, there's no shortage of fuel, we're going to channel that fuel into muscle, not fat, and we're getting a great detox from sweating and some hard breath and everything else from the physical exertion. Now it's 9 a.m. and you've got a completely different day already afoot than if you had just dragged through poor quality of sleep from 4 a.m. to 9. So if you respect the day-night cycle, if you're getting up at 4.30 or 5, you're not going to be up at 1 o'clock in the morning. Your body's no. going to be shutting down by 9 p.m. And that's a normal sleep time. So somewhere between 8.30 and 9 would typically be when the body's getting ready for sleep. Historically, it was very interesting that uh, it might be that uh, the best type of sleep is go to sleep around 8.30 p.m. and wake up at midnight, have a bite to eat, process some, you know, integrate maybe your dream state, integrate some of your short-term to long-term memory, and then go back to sleep at at 1 a.m. and sleep soundly until 4.30 
So there was something called first and second sleep that was in the mm. medical literature back in the 1800s. But we lost that whole phenomenon, but that, that may end up being true. And you might find that, self for you, you know, find that for yourself if you really listen to your body and let yourself go to sleep at 8.30 or 9 p.m., but you might naturally wake up three to four hours later, have a, a short period of lucidness, and then be ready to go back to sleep again and get really sound sleep again. That might be your ideal. Two I'm going to try that. And I'm so try that. Yeah. that can be a really potent thing. There's, there's a little surge of appetite hormone ghrelin that happens at midnight. And today when you ask an endocrinologist, why is that? We're like, well, we don't really know, but it turns itself off around 2 a.m. Well, it's probably surging because there's actually some advantage to getting up at midnight, you know, have that small healthy snack while you, you know, do some meditation. That'd be a perfect time to do your 20 minutes of self-affirmation and meditation, get centered, to, you know, let your anxiety levels drop again, process the day, and then move back into sleep again. And now your body's really ready to go into deep, deep sleep between 1 a.m. And, and 5 a.m. Now you've got these two great chunks of time, you know, 8.30 to 12.30 and then, you know, 1 to 5, something like that. Mm-hmm. Suddenly you got this really deep sleep happening in those two sectors and when you wake up, your metabolism is revved up, revved up, and you're ready to go. Very cool. So that's you, a good overview of that one on sleep. You mentioned, yeah, you mentioned two things. So sleep is one, and what a great detailed explanation on that. I'm gonna definitely have to try this: sleeping at night, waking up at midnight, and then trying the second second sleep cycle and see how that impacts um, my my wellness. Yeah. What's the second idea? Second idea, of course, is in the other 12 hours of the clock. Um, oh, oh, actually, I should mention one thing in regard to going to sleep early. It's very difficult to go to sleep early if you don't respect the evening in regard to light levels. If you are on your laptop or staring at a TV screen or under LED lights in your home until the moment you go to sleep, your brain's not ready for sleep. Your brain is getting stimulated by that bright light, uh, especially the blue tones within the light of an LED or your computer screen or TV. Um, if you are checking email late, you have to download this app. It's called irisstech.com is the website, I-R-I-S-Tech.com. And Iris Tech um, has a simple one. They, they've got a uh, Iris Mini, which is for your cell phone, and they've got uh, the full-blown Iris for your laptop or, or desktop. Um, I use Iris all the time. It's so po- I now use it all the time, any time of day. I never look at my computer if Iris isn't running. You can turn it off momentarily so that all the colors adjust back to that bright blue uh, tonage if I'm doing a PowerPoint presentation or something like that. But if I'm just personally looking at my laptop, I've always got Iris running. It really radically reduces the eye strain. Mm-hmm. But importantly, you need melatonin to turn on at night to be ready to go to sleep at a decent hour. Mm-hmm. Melatonin is shut off by these blue uh, light uh, frequencies that we're exposed to all the time through LED lights and TV screens and monitors. Um, so just respect that. What you're going after is a low intensity light. Remember that until just the recent last 50 or 100 years, humans never saw light at night. The That's brightest right. thing they saw at night was a flame. Or either the stars, a, yeah. Yeah, or the stars, which are very faint. But a candle or a firelight were the brightest things that their eye would ever see. Mm. And those are all in the red spectrum instead of the blue spectrum. And so red spectrum light doesn't shut down melatonin. It keeps, it keeps a lot of your brain function moving into that nocturnal state. I see. So starlight, the moonlight, firelight, all these are low-intensity lights with a red band. 
Um, one other tool uh, beyond iris, especially if you find yourself where you're working in an, a, a fluorescent or LED lit office space until late in the evening, you're going to want to look into uh, blue blocker glasses. These are very cheap. You can get them for $10 or $15 on Amazon, blue blocker glasses. They look kind of like the fishing, polarized fishing glasses that you see guys wearing uh, out on the lake. They're mm-hmm. orange. Uh, orange lens uh, or yellowish orange and they block that blue uh, spectrum and you can wear those and and I I always try to wear either a, a red polarized uh, lens or that amber lens you can even in your higher end sunglasses you can get those amber lenses instead of the brown lenses always get an amber lens and so my amber sunglasses uh, that are polarized are fantastic uh, functioning to block that blue light and what I have found is that I can actually tolerate shopping uh, in the evenings if I'm wearing those glasses. Uh, I used to have pretty much, uh, you know, rage effects if I was in Target for more than five minutes or any other large box store with all those fluorescent lights. Mm-hmm. I thought it was just because I hated shopping, but it turns <laughs> out it's this intense field of fluorescent lights on the ceiling that was putting me on edge and I slip on those polarized glasses and suddenly my anxiety level drops a couple levels and I can tolerate the fact that I can't find whatever I'm looking for, whatever it is better. And so um, think about light, think about trying to reduce the stress that you're getting uh, on your eyes and ultimately on your hormonal system because of all the blue light that we're surrounded by in the evenings. So then this, so that's kind of conclusion Mm -hmm. to the sleep piece. The other 12 hours during the daylight is what I want you to think about for the other kind of big lifestyle change as to how to affect change in your microbiome and your metabolism for losing weight and reducing inflammation and improving autonomic nervous system, reducing hot flashes, perimenopause, go on and on and on. And the answer is outside. And so you've got to get back in nature outdoors during the day. And this has a myriad of effects. And the number one effect is it changes the bacteria and fungi that you're breathing your ecosystem should involve somewhere around 30 to 50,000 species of bacteria, over 5 million species of fungi. We can't even really wrap our minds around the complexity wow. of that ecosystem. Yeah. Um, for the uh, bacteria, you're up around 2 million genes that are dictating our genome. So 2 million gene output from the bacteria, you're up at a nearly a trillion genes for the uh, fungi or way over a trillion. Actually, it's more like uh, pushing a hundred trillion for the fungi. And so you've got just billions and trillions of genes, genetic data that's imprinting on your genome when you're out in the environment. That's so beneficial. That creates such an intelligent system where suddenly your measly 20,000 genes can make millions of different variants depending on what input it's getting from the bacteria, fungi, from the environment. Mm-hmm. Your immune system should be programmed differently in the fall than it is in the spring, than it is in the summer, than it is in the winter. No matter which environment you live in, you should be cycling your hormonal and, and uh, genetic and uh, decision-making depending on what's happening in the ecosystem. You should be speeding up and slowing down your metabolism depending on what time of day. But if your body's experience is, I live in a drywall space and I travel to my office, which is a drywall space, and then I come home to a drywall space. And then maybe a couple times a week, I stop by a giant drywall building called Target or a grocery store. And I call that my outing. Well, you suddenly have identified almost no variety in this larger world around you. And you become very monotonous in your genomic information. And so the body you build 
Mm-hmm. And that environment that's monotonous is very monotonous in and of itself. It can't tolerate adversity. It can't tolerate uh, change of environment. It can't, can't tolerate many things. And so your world keeps shrinking and shrinking and shrinking because you keep feeling like, well, I can't even tolerate this. Or I go outside and I have uh, food allergies or, mm-hmm. or I have allergies to the mold or the fungus or the, or the pollen or whatever it is. Well, what's happened is you've so narrowed your experience of the genomic and microbial life around you that you can't tolerate adversity. If we get you back out into the nature as your daily routine and and first thing in the morning you're up early and you're up at 4.30 or 5 and you get a green juice or you you have my favorite thing is avocado toast and you have that and you got this great fat load and you go out and you you take a, a brisk walk through the neighborhood and you take the dog to the park and you kick around in the dirt with the dog and you're throwing the frisbee and you're picking up a dirty frisbee that's got dog slobber all over it and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. You're getting microbiome all over the place. Mm. Now your body's got a totally different um, experience in the day and now you come back and you're eating a big healthy breakfast and you're you just finished working out and I mean you can really rapidly see how you would have you would produce a completely different human body if this was your lifestyle and a mind I mean I think you'd be a lot more joyful if that was the beginning of your day instead of what today we have which is you wake up typically frazzled with so much to do you grab some coffee and race through awful traffic to a job you probably don't like. So yeah, it, it would be a probably whole new life experience for you if, if that was the beginning of your day. That's exactly right. And you just nailed it as this joy concept. What actually makes us joyful is finding purpose and pursuing that purpose. What makes us miserable is being in conflict with or going the wrong direction according to our purpose. And so our purpose is trying to head off to the right and we're going to on a steep left every day with our job and with our all the time that we're pouring into what feels like a frivolous pursuit of money or a frivolous pursuit of stock options or a frivolous pursuit of, you know, board member votes or whatever, you know, monotonous, ridiculous business scheme we've gotten ourselves into. Amazing amount of mental and physical and emotional energy going into that when in fact your purpose here may have been to educate children or to start an entrepreneurial environment for women in the developing world or some fascinating project that's going to equalize opportunity across the globe or bring a sustainable technology to unsustainable sectors of our society you know whatever it is you if you showed up right now in humanity you've got an incredible purpose because we're right at the tipping point right now. If we don't change everything in the next 20 years, we're going to lose the ability mm-hmm. to procreate. We are going to be so infertile by the mid-2030s that we can't even replace ourselves in the developed world, and we're going to have a huge collapse of human population. If you showed up right now, you showed up to be part of the radical change that's going to be necessary over the next 20 years to make us survive. And so I really believe that if you're listening today, you've already identified yourself as a thought leader. You've already identified yourself as somebody who's seen where your trajectory is going and saying, hell no. If I keep going down that avenue, I'm going to die early or my children are already sick. Mm -hmm. They're already collapsing in their health and they're only six or 12 or 18 years old. Hell no, we can't keep going this direction. And now you're listening in you're listening to Rena and a thousand other programs online and you're starting to research and you're starting to open up your mind. You are in purpose. You're coming closer to your purpose now, which is be an agent of change because we have to transform absolutely every sector of society if we're going to survive. You are so right. We starting with yourself, right? 
It has to start with fixing yourself first. And even something as simple as sleeping on the right time and waking up at the right time, which is hard though, Dr. Bush. So hard. Change is so hard. Um, I can say that because I've been there, done that, and I've changed. And it's so hard to to sustain that change. Let's talk bioidentical hormones though first. So there has been some argument. There's a couple of new books out as well that talk about the fact that with menopause comes not just the annoying symptoms, but also some pretty severe health issues, Um, breast cancer rates, osteoporosis, arthritis, whole host of things, cholesterol, like the heart disease. And that possibly using bioidenticals gives the female body a chance to prevent some of those issues. What are your thoughts on bioidenticals? Is there ever a case where it makes sense to use bioidenticals? Um, I, I think that there's a lot of cases where you could make an argument for their use, but I would then put a caveat on that, that it should be short-term use and it should always be recognized for what it is, which is a Band-Aid. It is never a solution. And so your body is going through what it is today, not because of progesterone or estrogen changes, it's going through what it's going through today because of the inflammation in your body. Mm-hmm. And so if you can keep that in mind and really embrace the reality of like, okay, I'm having all these symptoms. I don't want these symptoms, but there's no way that I have the mental or emotional reserve to put together a lifestyle change when I'm feeling this out of sorts. I can't even concentrate with my brain fog. I can't sleep because the hot flashes exactly. are so severe. Blah, blah, blah. Well, start your lifestyle changes. And if you want to go ahead and throw some bioidenticals into the mix, as long as you're carefully watched, bioidenticals are not safe and they are inherently a risky affair. Uh, anytime you start having a doctor, i.e. a human, in our limited capacity of knowledge and, uh, and tools, start to throw something like estrogen into the mix, I can guarantee you they're going to screw something up. There is no way a bioidentical hormone or a doctor practicing bioidentical hormones is going to nail exactly what your body needs Mm -hmm. because your body needs something different every single minute of the day. And we simply can't deliver that through a cream or a pill or anything else. And so you are inherently about to embark on a very unnatural journey with estrogen or progesterone if you start on bioidenticals. So keep that in mind. They are not bioidentical to anything. Uh, A bioidentical would be a pulse of estrogen coming from the ovary a few times a minute, all the way through the day, totally different dose at 8 a.m. than at 9 9 p.m., et cetera, et cetera. And so they're not bioidentical in any stretch of the imagination to what your body should be making if it was not inflamed. Got it. So it's a marketing term. It's a marketing term, very well packaged, and it is dangerous in the sense that it makes it sound super safe and supernatural, Mm -hmm. and it's neither of those. And so make sure you've got a good bioidentical therapist involved, somebody who's been monitoring your blood levels of that. And most of all, you want to watch out for any symptoms of bleeding. So if you have any abnormal bleeding, if you've stopped having periods and you start having periods again, you're probably on too much hormone. Mm. If you start having breakthrough bleeding uh, because you never stopped your periods, but now you're starting to see spotting partway through the month or a couple days before your period, you're on too much hormone. Um, So be very aware that if you see anything out out of your normal pattern, you're on too much hormone and you're putting your body at more risk, not less. Mm. So be careful with bioidenticals. Be aware that they're not identical to what your body should be doing and make okay. sure you're using them to a bridge towards something deeper, which is a root cause situation or a root cause solution to your problem, which is get your autonomic system working by decreasing the amount of inflammation by supporting 
these systems. And so start looking to things like your emu oil, your restore, your turmeric, mm-hmm. your plant-based diet, your you know, anti-inflammatory sleep patterns, all of these things. Get all of those involved and you're going to find out that, wow, I don't need these band-aids of progesterone and estrogen. When I'm clicking and I'm on my game, my mm-hmm. body is, is A, no longer perimenopausal and B, I'm getting stronger, not weaker through my own mechanisms of health. Keep in mind right. that if you start to get healthy, the bioidentical hormones, if you're using them, are going to start to become detrimental in the sense that they're screwing up what's right. now a, a, a system in recovery. Your system in recovery is going to be super confused if it suddenly has an infusion of estrogen progesterone coming through your gut or through your skin once a day or a couple times a week or whatever your pattern is. That's not how it's expecting to see it. And so if you have a system in recovery, keeping getting whacked with this unnatural delivery of Mm. hormone day day in and day out, then you've got an issue. What about the patches that you put on and they're pretty much there for about three to four days versus something that you swallow versus something that you insert? Are you biased towards either one of these? I... I'm not a huge fan of the patches. Again, you're delivering it to a very focal area of of the bloodstream. And so uh, you're going to get a very abnormal estrogen distribution in the venous uh, pattern from that area of your skin. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not a normal delivery system. I'd rather have a patch than a pill any day of the week, though. Uh, You should never be on oral estrogen. If you're going to be on a a bioidentical estrogen, you make sure it's topical either a patch or a cream. The the reason I like uh, the the creams is you can distribute them over a larger uh, area so that you're not getting such a high concentration in such a tiny area, um, that kind of thing. So I prefer the creams over the patches. I prefer both the creams and the patches over the pills. Um, Progesterone uh, often will be given orally, and that's a lot less dangerous than estrogen. Um, But keep in mind, if you take something orally, like progesterone, your liver is going to see the highest amount of that um, mm. hormone. And that's not what was intended. If, if your ovaries are making it, your liver sees very little of it. And it's actually your peripheral tissues that are seeing it, your, your vascular tree, your heart, your immune system, that's, it's getting a beneficial progesterone interaction. If you take it orally, then just your gut lining and your liver are getting hammered with very high progesterone levels, which are going to be immune modulatory in those systems and not necessarily getting into your brain and other areas that it's needed. You know, one of the things I've heard over and over again is, oh, my doc prescribed testosterone to help me with my weight issues. What are your thoughts on that? It's another Band-Aid. And so the natural effect of, the, um, of inflammation and stress on the system is going to be a drop in progesterone and a drop in testosterone, and then eventually a drop in estrogen. And so if you see a, a low testosterone level or you have symptoms of low testosterone, again, it's just an early symptom of chronic inflammation and stress. And you need to make some lifestyle changes. If you throw on a Band-Aid of testosterone, keep in mind, you just added a growth factor to what is already a stressed out system. In my okay. book, I almost guarantee you you are signing up for potentials for really bad outcomes in the, in the medium to long term uh, for this short term effect of feeling a bit better. So if you're going to do it, do it short term and make sure you're putting in play a lot more exercise and gut shift to make sure the microbiome shifting, you're outside a lot more, your day-night cycle is corrected. Make sure you're on all these pieces at play. Let's talk diet for a moment. So given that, of course, some, everyone should make sure they're having an organic, healthy, nutritious, farm-bought diet, is there a specific composition you recommend between fat, carbs, proteins? for someone in menopause. And I'll caveat that with my own experience. 
and I could be unique, but I'll share it. So I noticed that if I didn't have enough protein in a given day, I would have more tendency towards a hot flash than not. Now I haven't had a hot flash in six months, so yay. But when I was experiencing them, I, I found that if I took, you know, sort of a, a very healthy kitchery vegetable diet, I would have more hot flashes than if I'd, let's say, had some fish or some chicken that day. Yeah, what are your thoughts on that? It's not the protein. The protein is actually acidic and, and inflammatory, hmm. especially your bigger fish. So salmon and tuna, the two most common that women are consuming in our country, mm-hmm. are the same protein structure as beef. It's L-carnitine. Oh, Interesting. As very inflammatory. And so women have been taught again through a marketing campaign that get the fish on the menu. It's better than, than that's the right. Beef. Well, and that. salmon. Exactly. Salmon is meant to be the number one anti inflammatory fish, right? Right. When in fact, you're eating L carnitine, the same inflammatory protein that you're getting in beef. Um, the reason why it got touted is that is because salmon is relatively high in omega 3s. Well, the only reason if you, that you need omega-3s is if you have tons of omega-6s and 9s, which are the inflammatory omega fats, and that's why salmon is high in omega-3s is because there's tons of 6s, 9s, 12s in there. Ah. And so it's an inherently inflammatory uh, compound that has enough omega-3 to help reduce some of that stress. But nonetheless, what you were actually experiencing is not a protein benefit, it was a fat benefit. So if you're having hot flashes, and frankly, this is for any condition, if you have chronic inflammation, then fat is your most important antidote. You do need healthy fats. And so something like trans fat from margarine from hydrogenated oil is going to kill you instantly. However, if you have a healthy uh, monosaturated fat like olive oil at raw temperatures or you have um, the saturated fat that you see in coconut oil, or even better, you get into the emu oil that I mentioned earlier. These oils are super potent at reducing inflammation and stabilizing that autonomic nervous system. So I think what you were getting when you noticed that you had fewer hot flashes if you had a piece of fish is it was the fat in the fish that was actually helping you towards that end point rather than the protein. Thank you so much for clarifying that. I, I have to ask this and then we'll wrap up. I know we were a little bit, o- a little bit over. I feel like I can literally chat with you for hours. So. <laughs> Um, every time I chat with you, I learn something new, which is contrary to what the general information out there is. So I'm listening to you going, how are we going to correct the misinformation out there and to adopt a phrase of a person I do not like? There is so much fake news out there with respect Mm -hmm. to health and wellness. And of course, then there's you out there going, no, no, let me tell you the truth. This, this is what it is. How do we change this, this curve so that there's more information that's accurate and relevant? So simple. More Rena. <laughs> more of you. It's and, more Zach. So we need more of you. And the question is, how do we do that? <laughs> well, it turns out there's only one of me, but there's you know there's a yes. whole army of you. Yes. And and you and all the bloggers out there, I really believe that the internet, the silver lining on the internet is definitely not Facebook, it's not Twitter, it's not all the things that are distracting our whole population. Um, the, the silver lining to the internet is access to information. And because I really believe that real media, real truth can be meted out by the people, not by our CNNs and our our big news moguls that are consolidating information more as entertainment than actual uh, useful information. 
And so it really is your show and so many others that I spend all my time on. And that's why I put such a huge part of my time into doing podcasts for all these various people around the country is because you guys are the mouthpiece for truth and the consumer is ultimately trusting you because you have been on the journey. It's one thing to listen to an endocrinologist and a doctor have a contrarian perspective on what their functional medicine doctor or somebody else has told them. It's a much different thing to hear a patient who's been on this, on this journey walk the same walk as they're walking right now and said, I have moved from point A to point B and these tools have been useful uh, and all the rest. And so, you know, your testimony on Restore will outweigh 10 hours of me blabbing about the science about some product I developed. So I, I really think it's more of you uh, and not just Rena, but more of you mm-hmm. out there in the public. And so all of you listening know that you're part of that. Rena is sensing the same sort of desperation that I'm sensing in my life is, man, I know so much and I have such important information for the population to know right now, but I can't get it out there fast enough. So mm-hmm. we need every one of you that's listening to become a part of that grassroots movement for truth, part of the grassroots movement for real answers, not band-aids. And it's, you know, as a functional integrative medicine doctor kind of thing, I, I want you to know that I want to push my paradigm. I, I want to deprogram my doctoring into just an education-based system rather than an intervention-based kind of Mm -hmm. mindset. And so you guys are now responsible uh, to make be an agent of change in your environment. That might just be in your immediate family, but it always starts with you first, as Rena mentioned. And so you being on this journey yourself, you actually finding time to to self-love, self-respect, and self-value yourself to the degree that you're going to put the time and the resources of thought and self-discipline into these lifestyle changes that are going to put you on a completely different course. That's the revolution. You don't have to do this for anybody other than yourself, but if you do it well for yourself, there's going to be a wave effect. There's going to be ripples that'll shoot out from you as an epicenter of change into your immediate family, into your workplace, into your churches and synagogues, et cetera, et cetera. You're going to just have a whole different shift happen uh, around you, not because you're being an over-servant, but because you're simply becoming an agent of truth and knowledge. And you joining us today is a huge part of that. So thanks for joining us. <laughs> Brilliantly said. Thank you so much for taking your time out and doing this, sharing your knowledge, sharing your information. Really appreciate Dr. Bush. And for the rest of you, you heard it. Be the agent of truth. Don't just listen to the podcast and keep the information to yourself. Get out there and share. Tell everyone what it takes to deal with menopause symptoms, what it takes to get your health back. And no, it's not in a bioidentical cream. That is not the answer. So thank you for listening. Please share. And let's get everybody healthy together. Until next time, this is Rena. That's a wrap. Share your love with a five-star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps Facebook and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.